Welcome to the Highland Church Podcast, where we share biblical teaching to glorify God and to bless you. This year, we're talking about my part, God's plan. God has a purpose for you, and that purpose is a part of God's bigger plan for the world. Now, if you connect with what you hear today, I hope you'll join us online Sundays at 10 a.m., or that you'll join us on-site right here in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, let's jump into today's teaching, and don't forget, you're part of God's Morning, church. Uh, I want to thank those who were involved in our service last week. We had a, just a beautiful communion service. You know that we take communion every week. But last week, we spent our whole time together focused on it. I'm thankful to Alan Black for leading us in that. It was really special. So if you missed that, if you were traveling, I hope that you'll, you'll check it out. I got back from vacation last night. I had a great time on vacation and came in the door last night. And uh, my wife has, my, my beautiful wife right here has this thing. Raise your hand if you're like this. If we're out of town, she thinks that the first thing we need to do when we get back into town is change the sheets on all the beds. Is anybody else like this? Okay, I know. That's what I think too. And, um, <clears throat> but there's something about like dust collecting on the sheets that she just wants to sleep in fresh sheets when she comes home from a trip. And I'm like, there hasn't been any strangers in our bed. You know, I think it's, it's probably good, but she wants to change the sheets. And I'll tell you something. I... I love you, babe. I couldn't care less about anything in the world than changing the sheets when we come home from vacation. You know what I'm talking about? I'm gaining support for my cause here, babe. And uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I didn't know sheets were something you had to wash. Freshman year of college, I didn't wash my sheets the whole year. Whole year. I've got this weird skin thing on my back. I don't know what it's about. And... So, we, so we're changing the sheets last night, and um, I learned this trick a long time ago as a good husband helping to change the sheets of the bed, that about halfway through the sheet changing process, she'll ask me the question, and the question is, how much of the sheet or comforter is hanging over on your side? You know what I'm talking about? I'm like, I don't know, three inches, four inches. She'll come over there and like, that's a foot, Eric. That's at least a foot. <clears throat> so I learned something, pro tip a long time ago, I learned this early in our marriage. <clears throat> What you do, husband, is you ask the wife first how much is on her side. And then whatever you, she says, you say, same here. <laughs> right? <clears throat> Been doing it 12 years. She hasn't noticed yet. Like pro tip. Okay. It's in moments like that when we're changing the sheets together that I can see on Lindsay's face. This this like, why, God? You know, why? Okay. <clears throat> We're not going to start our Acts series back up today because it's the last week of fall break. So we're going to do something special out of, actually out of the book of Mark, out of a, a passage in the book of Mark I did not preach through when we went through it. Uh, but the reason that this passage is on my mind is that it just, it just so happens that right now, a number of you have shared with me about difficult situations that you're navigating with somebody that you love a lot. And somebody who's just on your heart, maybe they're caught up in sin, maybe they're suffering from something, and it just seems like there's a heavy burden of those in our church family who are, are perhaps asking a question in all seriousness to God of why, God? Why is, why is this person I love going through this? Why, why have you brought us together? What am I supposed to do? 
Give me direction, Lord. And so I hope that this passage might help you there. This is in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. And some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then they lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, and they were thinking to themselves, Well, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to him, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up. He took his mat, and he walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. As I've been working on our series in the book of Acts, one of the things that I'm struck by is the way that God ordains and facilitates relationships in the book of Acts. Where God brings people together who otherwise not ha- might, might not have been brought together for his purposes. And I'm not going to say that God ordains every single meeting you have throughout your day. But there is without a doubt a theme in the book of Acts that God brings people together for his purposes. I mean, let me give you some examples. You've got Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember that story in Acts 8? God brings them together. You've got Ananias and Paul, or Saul at the time. Peter and Cornelius, Philip and Silas, or sorry, Paul and Silas in the prison guard, Paul and Agrippa, King Agrippa there at the end. And that story, Paul is before King Agrippa, one of the ancient rulers, rulers of the ancient world. And he's with him for such a short time, but he is very convinced that God has orchestrated this short meeting with King Agrippa. And so he puts the Christian pitch on this guy. I mean, he just makes a hard sell for Jesus on King Agrippa. And Agrippa says to him, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, short time or long, yes. (laughs) Yes is a paraphrase of what he actually says. But Paul and the early Christians like him believed that God had a hand in bringing people to them or in bringing them to people. And that awareness led them to this conviction that they could not waste an opportunity with anybody in their life, whether they were a sinner or a sufferer of some kind, that they believed they had this responsibility to them, and it carried them forward. As I read this story about this man who's been paralyzed and his friends, I see in those friends that same clarity 
They don't view their relationship with this brother of theirs as accidental. They feel a responsibility for him. Now, they know that they can't heal him. They can't fix what's wrong in him. But they feel some responsibility to get him to the one who can do something for him, for their friend. So they're not going to waste this relationship. They're not going to waste this opportunity. They see in him someone they're responsible for in some way that God has ordained this. Um. So how about a C.S. Lewis story? This is one of my favorite scenes in all of the Narnia stories. There is this mouse named Reepicheep. You know Reepicheep? He's a valiant mouse. And he leads an army of little mice who are loyal to the king, Aslan, who's the Jesus figure in the stories. And years before, the mice had helped Aslan in his time of need, and so they've always had a special bond, Aslan and the mice. So at the end of Prince Caspian, there's this great battle, and um, Reepicheep leads his mice into battle against giants. He's a little mouse. and leads him into battle. And afterwards, we catch this scene. And just to help you with this scene, there's a, there's a young girl, Lucy, who has a bottle of healing potion. So let me read this to you. A little bit longer, but it's so good. At that moment, a curious little procession was approaching, eleven mice, six of whom carried between them something on a litter made of branches. <clears throat> no one had ever seen mice more woebegone than these. They were plastered with mud and some with blood, too, and their ears were down and their whiskers drooped and their tails dragged in their grass, and their leader piped on his slender pipe a melancholy tune. And on the litter lay what seemed a little better than a damp heap of fur, all that was left of Reepicheep. He was still breathing, but he was more dead than alive. Gashed with innumerable wounds, one paw crushed, and where his tail had been, a bandaged stump. And so at that moment, Aslan tells Lucy to heal him with the potion, and she pours the potion on him, and he jumps up. At once his hand went to his sword hilt, and the other twirled his whiskers, and he bowed. Hail Aslan, came his shrill voice, so he's been healed, and he bows before Aslan. <clears throat> I have the honor. But, but then he suddenly stopped, and the fact was that he still had no tail. And Reepicheep became aware of his loss as he made his bow. Perhaps it altered something in his balance. So he looked over his right shoulder, and, and failing to see his tail, he strained his neck further over the left shoulder, and only after he had turned around completely three times did he realize the dreadful truth. I am confounded, said Reepicheep to Aslan. I am completely out of countenance, and I must crave your indulgence for appearing before you in this unseemly fashion. Oh, Reepicheep, it becomes you very well, said Aslan. All the same, said Reepicheep, if anything could be done. But what do you want with the tail, asked Aslan. Sir, said the mouse, I have sometimes, <clears throat> sorry, I can eat and sleep and die for my king without a tail. But a tail is the honor and glory of a mouse. Aslan replied, I have sometimes wondered, my friend, whether you do not think too much about your honor. I could preach a sermon on that. 
But then he looks up, and all of Reepicheep's fellow mice have drawn their swords, and they're standing behind Reepicheep with swords drawn. And he says, why have your followers drawn their swords, may I ask? May it please your high majesty, said the second mouse, whose name was Peepikeek. We are all waiting to cut off our own tails if our chief must go without his. We will not bear the shame of wearing an honor which is denied to the high mouse. Ah, roared Aslan, you have conquered me. You have great hearts. Not for the sake of your dignity, Reepicheep, but for the love that is between you and your people, and still more, for the kindness your people showed me long ago. You shall have your tail again. And before Aslan had finished speaking, the new tale was in its place. First time I read that story, I wept in the bedroom with my boys. And y'all are like, you cry about everything, Eric. That kind of loyalty is precious, isn't it? And you might think about friends in your life who perhaps couldn't heal you themselves, but with great faith would not abandon you and brought you to the one who could heal you. Do you have those kind of friends? I think that's Lewis's version of the story of the paralyzed man. Because in that story, you may notice that when the man is lowered down through the roof to Jesus, Jesus sees the paralyzed man, but we're actually told that he looked and saw their faith. Do you see that? Look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the friends, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. As I've prayed over this passage and reflected on that, I've asked the question again and again, what was the substance of their faith? What was the faith that Jesus saw in these friends that so motivated him that he would forgive their friend and then heal their friend? Was their faith, their faith to their friend? Their loyalty to their friend in need? Was their faith, and probably this is more likely, their belief that Jesus was the only one who could help their friend? Was their faith their long history of obedience to the Lord, like the mice who had helped Aslan years before? Was that the faith that Jesus looks on these friends and sees and knows and knowing that is motivated to heal their friend? Probably the answer to all three of those questions is yes. Probably at some level, their faith is their commitment to their friend, their confidence in Jesus and their long history of obedience to him. And Jesus looks at the friend's faith and then forgives, and then heals the paralyzed man. This passage is hard for me and my family, and it may be the reason that I skipped it when we did the Mark series. Many of you know, and if if you're newer to Highland, you may not know this, that my father-in-law is paralyzed. About six years ago, he was in an accident, and he's paralyzed now from the waist down. And so ever since then, this story has meant a lot more to me, and I've, I've prayed over this story countless times and thought about this story countless times. Um, I'll tell you, I sympathize with the friends in this story. Uh, the few times that we've tried to get in someplace that wasn't wheelchair accessible, I can't tell you how hard that is. Uh, in fact, Lindsay and I moved homes about two years ago. One of the main reasons we moved was that our house built in the 1950s just couldn't accommodate my father-in-law. I couldn't get into it. And so I remember I have this memory. We were newly home from the hospital, and we were trying to encourage him. He was really discouraged, obviously. And so Lindsay had stayed in Dallas for months to help to care for him and to help her mom. And 
And so they, we came home from the hospital and we took him on a stroll around the block, uh, Lindsay pushing him in the wheelchair, or me pushing him, I don't recall. And we had Foster, who was only a year old or maybe less than a year at the time, and he sat in his grandfather's lap as we pushed around the block. And we caught uh, an edge of concrete that was sticking up. And so he hadn't developed his upper body strength yet. And so at that moment, we caught that bit of concrete and he spilled forward out of the chair. And instead of landing on his one-year-old, he just turned his body to protect his, his grandson and just landed on his shoulder and arm. I remember he was cut and bleeding there on the sidewalk. And then we had the, the very difficult task of getting a grown man who was unable to help you from the waist down back into his wheelchair. It was so hard. And so I think about the great links that these friends go to to get their friend to the rooftop of this house and lower him to Jesus. I mean, the effort must have been extraordinary. And of course, as I think about this story in relation to my, my father-in-law, that the thing that comes to mind for me is how many times that we have prayed that he would walk again and be healed, and, and it, it doesn't seem that that's likely. But I'll tell you, to focus exclusively on that need, his physical need, is to miss what this passage is trying to tell us. And that's that for, for none of us, no one, no one in this room, no one that you know, none of your friends, none of the people that God has brought into your life, the relationships that he has ordained in your life, for none of them is their primary need physical. And, and I'll tell you, that's why this story is so disorienting to us because what is the first thing that Jesus does or says to the man? Son, your sins are forgiven. And we think they're going to lower him down on this mat to Jesus and he's going to heal him and tell him get up and walk. And the first thing he does actually is to say, son, your sins are forgiven, which is to say Jesus knows what is truly wrong with him. And when we live in a world where we tend to think that all of our problems are physical or social or cultural or political, and Jesus is clear that the real problem is inside here, that it's sin. And that if you want any shot at any kind of life, you need to be forgiven of that. In fact, that's what's pretty fascinating about this story is that we would think paralysis is his greatest need. And Jesus identifies sin as his greatest need because there's something worse than paralysis, and that's death. And the Bible is very clear that living in sin is no kind of life, that that is actually death. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians? He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And he goes on to say, all of us. And so until that is dealt with in someone, whether that's you or someone you love, their life, your life is not life. It's death. I had the joy of studying with a young man recently who's preparing to give his life to Christ. Came into my orbit after a relationship had fallen apart. And then began to look back over the rest of, the his, of his life's history. And one after another, his relationships would fall apart. And things fell apart in all kinds of areas of his life. And he couldn't understand why that was. And the answer is it's because death 
is reaching its tentacles into every area of your life as long as sin is inside and untreated. Everything will fall apart and die and wilt until that is treated. And so what I love about Jesus in this story, and there's so much to love, but the great physician here is very clear about the actual diagnosis. What you actually need, young man, is to be forgiven of sin. And so the teachers of the law who are listening would have really agreed with that if Jesus had just said, what this guy needs is to be forgiven of sin. But what Jesus actually says is, son, your sins are forgiven. And what they know is that nobody has the right to forgive sins except God. And that's because nobody has the power to forgive sins but God, because nobody has the power to bring back from death to life but God. Resurrection power is what's on display in this story. And so when Jesus forgives the man of his sins, what's he saying about himself? I am God. And I have the power and authority to do this. In fact, he says this in verse 10. The reason I'm doing this is I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Okay, so look at that. What does Jesus care most about in this story? He cares about the man's physical condition. He does heal him. But more than that, he prays about the man's inner sickness. And he treats that. But more than that, he cares about his glory. And everyone there in attendance, witnessing, seeing, and believing that he has all authority. And therefore giving their lives to him. So let's return to that original question. Why would Jesus ordain a relationship in my life that is difficult? A meeting with someone, a friend, a friend, a family member where there's a struggle. Why would God put that person in my orbit when it's so hard? Well, the answer is not so that you might save them. Does God put them into my life so that I might forgive them? No. Does God put them into my life so that I might forgive them? No. Who is the only one in this story with the authority to save and give life and forgive? Jesus. And I think that God, the reason that God places those people in our lives is so that we might simply bring them to him, that he might heal them and receive the glory he's jealous for. Well, I was trying to think of an example of this Something that you could visualize as we're getting ready to go here. Um, because, the, let me be really clear, sin is the thing that's killing all of us. It's not just killing the, the paralyzed man in the story. It's killing all of us. We all need deeply the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That's why we come to him week after week seeking his forgiveness. And so this is the thing that all of us are drowning in, sin. A need to be forgiven from and forgiven for and freed from. So let me give you a visual. I, when Lindsay and I were interviewing for this job, we came here about 10, a little over 10 years ago, and we flew into Memphis, and David Ralston, one of the shepherds here, picked us up from the airport, and he took us to the Peabody Hotel. 
And so we saw the ducks. They were very cute. And then we went up the elevator and stood on the roof of the Peabody, and we looked out over the Mississippi River. And it was my first time to see the Mississippi up close. I mean, maybe I had seen it as a little kid. I don't remember it. But I just remember being overwhelmed by the power and size and might of the Mississippi River. It's terrifying. A couple years later, we took a men's canoe trip down the Mississippi River. Were any of you on that canoe trip? Any of you? Yeah, because it was a terrible idea to canoe on the Mississippi River. And all of you knew it. I know we went down, it was really fun, but I'll tell you, it's even more terrifying up close, that swirling, muddy water all around you. So imagine with me, you're on a boat in the Mississippi River and that boat turned over. And you looked out from the middle of the Mississippi to the shore that's distant. You're being swept downstream and pulled under faster than you can control. But you begin to swim for shore, hoping beyond hope that you'll make it. But then you look to your side, and there's somebody struggling beside you, turned out of the same boat, drowning in the same water. And at that moment, you think to yourself, why? This is hard enough as it is just for me. Why? But you feel a responsibility for this person. You can't leave them to drown, so you swim to them, you grab hold of them, and you begin to swim one arm towards the shore, and now it just seems impossibly distant There's no way you'll ever make it. You'll surely drown. And at that moment, though, a man appears on a boat, a little fishing boat, pulls up next to you and reaches out a hand. And so now, the short swim to the man on the boat is much more attainable than the swim to shore. You see that? The swim to shore is impossible, but if you could just get him or her, to that man. Maybe you both might live. As I'm telling that story, you think about Tom Lee. Remember the story of Tom Lee, Memphis hero? Tom Lee was, what, 1925. He's following this steamship, the M.E. Norman, up the Mississippi River that's making its way back to Memphis, loaded down with people, and it begins to list to the side. What Lee said later was that she was riding serious, he said. And it turns over and it spills 72 people out into the cold water in the Mississippi River. And they're in uh, suits and dresses. And they're way down in this water. And they begin to go under. And he's in just this little fishing boat, the Zeb. But he motors up that fishing boat. And he goes rescuing one person after another, pulling them out of the frigid water and pulling them to safety eight at a time, carrying them to a sandbar and going back out. In fact, hours later, after rescue boats had already arrived, continued to look for survivors. They couldn't find Lee to thank him because he was still out on the water looking for people who might be out there hours later. Well, Lee didn't realize he eventually saved 32 people. What he didn't realize was that with every person he pulled from that water, his glory was increasing. In fact, afterwards, the captain told the commercial appeal, Lee deserves the greatest of credit for the manner in which he handled his motorboat and saved many lives. One of those who was saved said, we all owe our lives to Tom Lee, and that's all there is to it. The commercial appeal urged officials to give Lee the Carnegie Medal of Heroism, and the African Methodist Church passed the resolution, we hail you, Tom Lee, as the patron knight of this new age of chivalry and heroism. Somebody finally asked Lee what he wanted, and he said he just wanted a house. 
And so all of these gifts from all over the country poured in. And one of my favorite, came from, one of my favorite contributions came from a nine-year-old boy in Mississippi, James Kilgore, who sent a card along with his 50 cents. And he said this, here's 50 cents. I'm a little farmer's boy and a widow's little boy, but I wanted to send something to help out. So I sold my pet hen, and here's the money. What was Lee receiving? Glory. Glory. Right? And that's what we see at the end of this story as Jesus treats what's really wrong in someone. The people see it, we're told, and they, this amazed everyone. And what did they do? They praised God, Mark 2.12. It amazed everyone, and they praised God. <clears throat> Why might Jesus ordain a relationship between me and somebody else who's struggling, suffering, sinning? It's not for me to save them. It's not for me to fix them. But maybe God has brought them into your orbit that you might simply help them to come to him. Because Christ Jesus takes great delight in healing what is wrong in us. And when he heals and fixes and forgives, he receives glory. And he deserves it alone. No one else. So I just want to leave you with this thought as we pray. Who is that person in your life? And as you think about them, you think, oh, I can't save them. No, you can't. Can you get them to the one who can? Let me pray for you. God, I thank you for your people here in this room. I'm thankful for those of our number that are traveling this week, watching online. I'm thankful for God, the great responsibility of care and concern for the people in our lives who need your son, Jesus. God, give us the courage, the energy, the endurance to simply bring them to your son. We pray this in his mighty name, the name of Jesus Christ, our King and Savior, the forgiver of our sins. It's in his name we pray. Amen.